Jones, in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, kept him going for 45 years. Rodney. <laughs> Charlotte Chapel. Which would be another 31 years for Peter. Peter. I don't know what you think about that, but I'm just drawing attention that what happened here was deeply significant in the life of this man of God. And the first imperative that I believe we need to acknowledge this morning is that we are to be thankful for those who have molded and shaped and fashioned our lives. The words, verse 1 of Jeremiah, son of Hokiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. It's very easy to pass over a verse like that in order to get into what might be perceived to be the meat of the passage. And it is a meaty passage. But this reminds us of the background in which Jeremiah was raised of the impacts and the influences that were on his life. His dad was a priest. His name was Hilkiah, which in the Hebrew tongue means God is all I want. So not only did he have a godly father, but he must have had a godly grandfather who were concerned to give to their little boy a name that would remind him of the goodness and the grace and the faithfulness of God. The calling of God was on Jeremiah's father's life. He was a priest. And uh, there's a background to that, which I won't go into at the moment. But it was in that kind of environment that uh, Jeremiah began to grow as a little boy into maturity. He came from a place called Anathoth, a very small place, on a, the top of a hill, and as a little boy, there's no doubt that he would uh, use the geographical location of this place to see the highways that were going to the north and the south and the trade that went there, and so gave him a concept of the wider world and the wider society and culture to which he belonged. So there was a spiritual preparation there was a geographical preparation, but there was also a political preparation. It was in this context that uh, Jeremiah grew up. And the political context was the, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Israel. And so I'm saying here right at the beginning that we need to be thankful. And Rodney, I want to speak to you but I want to speak to all the men and women of God who are here today. This is a good moment. The 30th of July, 2006. When this congregation makes a new beginning as you add a new member to your team. This is a good moment to think back over the past years and to identify people, places, events, circumstances that shaped and molded your life. Some of these, most of these, no doubt, were very positive and creative. Some of them may well have been negative and even destructive. But in all of this, God is fulfilling his purposes as he brings us to this hour. So the first imperative is 
Look back and be thankful for those who have molded and shaped and fashioned your life. The second imperative is in verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me. He now makes it personal. He acknowledges that God has spoken to him. Verse 7. But the Lord said to me. Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Verse 12. The Lord said to me. Verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me again. And then in verse 14, the Lord said to me. So if you read this chapter, you're left in no doubt whatsoever that we have a speaking God. That we have a God who not only has ears to hear what we are saying to him, but he also has lips by which he speaks into our lives. Of course, God never speaks contrary to his word, ever. Of course, God never contradicts his son, ever. But there's a whole variety of ways in which God speaks into our lives. And so the second imperative is be mindful that you have a speaking God. Now that's wonderful because it ensures that we can have a living, vibrant relationship with God. Because we can dialogue, we speak, he hears, he speaks, we listen. It's very difficult to have a living relationship where there's no dialogue. So this is good news that we have a speaking God. But of course, it can be bad news because sometimes God says stuff to us that we really don't want to hear. And we prefer that God didn't make us aware of his direction and his guidance. You see, when God speaks to us, he doesn't speak to see if we like what he says. He doesn't speak so that we can agree with what he says. He doesn't speak to us so that we can discuss what he says. God speaks to us so that we will obey what he says. I do a bit of traveling in this country. And uh, wherever I go these days, I want to ask Christians these five questions. Number one, when last did God speak to you? Question two, what did God say to you when last he spoke to you? Brothers and sisters, it seems to me that this is mandatory for every man and woman of God that we ask and answer these questions. See, when God speaks, normally it's straightforward and simple. When it becomes complicated and convoluted, there's an orange light or even a red light goes on in my head. And I'm wondering if it's God. Because God wants me to know what he wants me to know. So the second question, what did God say to you when last he spoke to you? Third question, how did God speak to you? When last he spoke to you? What was the means that he used? See, we have a God of infinite variety. A God who loves to do the same thing differently. That's the kind of creative God that we have. So the third question, how did God speak to you when last he spoke to you? Fourth question is the big question. How do you know it was God who was speaking to you? How do you know that it wasn't 
some kind of psychological auto-suggestion. How do you know that what you are responding to is indeed the agenda and the will and the purpose of God? How do you know it's God? And the fifth question, what have you done with what God said the last time that he spoke to you? These are five crucial questions for the man or the woman of God. And so I've said as the second imperative for the man of God or the woman of God, be mindful that you have a speaking God. Some years ago I was introduced to an American author, a man called Max Lucado. And in one of his books, I picked this up from his book, this is what he says, once there was a man who dared God to speak. Burn the bush like you did for Moses, God, and I will follow. Collapse the walls like you did for Joshua, God, and I will fight. Still the waves like you did on Galilee, God, and I will listen. And so the man sat by a bush near a wall close to the sea and waited for God to speak. Listen. And God heard the man, so God answered. He sent fire. Not for a bush, but for a church. He brought down a wall, not of brick, but of sin. He stilled a storm, not of the sea, but of a soul. And God waited for the man to respond. And he waited, and God waited, and God waited. But because the man was looking at bushes, not hearts, bricks, not lives, seas, not souls, he decided that God had said nothing. Finally, the man looked at God and he said, Have you lost your power? And God looked at him and said, Man, have you lost your hearing? How about it, folks? Not only individually, but corporately, congregationally. Are we really committed, passionately, to the reality that we have a speaking God. Be mindful that you have a speaking God. And then in verses 2 and 3, very strange verses, the word of the Lord came to him, verse 2, in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. What is that about? It seems like an historical diatribe. But what's happening in verses 2 and 3 is that we are being given the setting, the context, the environment in which Jeremiah is to fulfill his commission. And so the third imperative for the man of God or the woman of God, is be attentive to the culture in which you serve God. Now that's not always easy for men and women of my generation. Because I'm basically a 20th century man, desperate and concerned and determined to get into the 21st century. But there's a great danger for people like me, maybe for some of you, that we can be guilty of and answering questions that nobody's asking any longer. The church historically has been pretty good at that kind of stuff. So I, I wrote down 
some features of our culture. We live in a culture where everything is relative and we've destroyed absolutes. We've ridiculed the absolute truth of God's word and we've called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've killed the unborn and called it choice. We have rewarded laziness and called it social security. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political necessity. We have coveted our neighbors possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have blurred the God-ordained distinctiveness of gender and we've called it equal opportunity. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. We have called wrong right and right wrong and that's the culture in which we are to fulfill the commission of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So that we be relevant and incisive and significant and revolutionizing as we go in the name of our Savior, in the power of the Holy Spirit, under the sovereignty of Almighty God, with the message, the liberating message, of the good news of Calvary and the empty tomb and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be attentive to the culture in which you serve God. Then let's move over to verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, look at it, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Better translation from the original text is, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so the uh, the fourth uh, imperative is, be convinced that you are here by choice, not by chance. That you came from the north of Scotland to the east of Scotland to the capital city of Edinburgh to Charlotte Baptist Chapel to this moment and this hour. My brother in Christ, you are here not by chance. You are here by choice. I don't understand it. It's the biblical doctrine of predestination. I don't understand it, but I believe it passionately. It sometimes confuses me intellectually. How can I be free as an individual and yet still God be sovereign? I don't know. But that paradox lies at the very heart of what we believe about kingdom living. That we are not afterthoughts, we are forethoughts. That God took the trouble to map out my destiny. It says here, even before the world knew me. Before I formed you in the womb. Before fertilization had taken place. I chose you. Before you were born. When you became 
A little child in your mother's womb. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Wow, intellectually and mentally, I struggle with this. But believe it, passionate, because emotionally, it is such an incredibly encouraging reality. So number four, be convinced that you're here by choice, not by chance. Takes us into verse 6. Here is Jeremiah's response. He says, ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I am only a child. And the fifth imperative, brothers and sisters, there are some who are with us in this morning service, either because you normally come here or you've come because you're on holiday or visiting this great city. And God has been speaking to you, not necessarily this morning. But in the days that have gone, and the weeks, months, maybe even years, and your response to what you know to be God's will and purpose and plan for your life, you make excuses. Well, that's what the man is, is doing here. We run a home for elderly people. Across the road from our church, where we care for 38 elderly people. I go across there quite regularly. And I sometimes get into conversation for those who are of my own generation, some even beyond that, would you believe. And we talk together. And I hear some of these elderly people saying something like this. I've done my whack. Well, they don't speak that way, but that's what they mean. I'm leaving it now to the younger ones. And I look into their eyes. And I say to them, that is an ungodly thing to say. Now that stops the conversation very quickly. <laughs> I say to them, because you are not the church of yesterday. You are the church of today. On a Sunday evening, our galleries are pretty full with young people. Many of them come to the evening service because they can't get up for the morning service, and so they're in the evening service. And I have a good relationship with them, too. And sometimes, in fact, they're ending a mission in Chester on this very morning. Yeah, many of our young people. And they, they say to me, when I'm asking them if they would do something, they say, but uh, I'm not experienced enough. They don't use this language. In fact, they use language that I'm still trying to catch up with. I'm not very experienced or I'm immature. And I do the same thing with them. I look into their eyes and I say to them, that is an ungodly thing to say. Because you are not tomorrow's church. You are today's church. See, brothers and sisters, it's not a matter of age. It's a matter of availability. And we can find ourselves in verse 6. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said. I do not know how to speak, which is a bit tough of you to be a prophet. I'm only a child. I'm immature. I'm inexperienced. I don't know my way around these things. And so number five. Be careful about making excuses to God. And that takes us into verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Hey, do not say, 
I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. So the sixth imperative is be aware that God normally instructs rather than invites. Is it? Do not say. Hey, stop making excuses. I'm I'm not giving you an invitation. I'm giving you some instructions. I'm speaking clearly into your heart and your situation. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. And so we need to be aware. But God is God. That Jesus Christ is Lord. So that we look into his face and we say, not your wish is my command, but your commands is my wish. That's where I'm at on this last Sunday of July 2006. Be aware. Hey, that God normally instructs rather than invites. And so to verse 8, do not be afraid of them. Literally, don't be afraid of their faces. That can be pretty daunting. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Hey, look at number seven. Be confident that in obedience, look at the words of these imperatives. Be confident that in obedience you will never be alone. Whatever the situation, however rough the road, however great the pressure, hey, you will never be alone. That's precisely what God is saying to this young man on this occasion. I was raised in Lanarkshire in Scotland. And a few miles away from the town where I was born and raised, there was, as far as I'm aware, the first theme park in Scotland. They didn't call it that in those days. It was over in a place called Blantyre, where David Livingstone was born. And as a little boy growing up in a Christian family, David Livingstone was a sort of hero of mine. They actually showed the first movie that I ever saw in our church hall. In fact, it may have been the only movie that was ever shown in our church hall. But I can remember as a wee boy sitting in the darkness watching this black and white shaky looking movie. But I was intrigued by it. He was a man who was an explorer. He was a man who wanted to hit the slave trade hard. He was an emancipator. He was a man who was an evangelist with the London Missionary Society. He was greatly honored, particularly by my old University of Glasgow. Glasgow University conferred on him an honorary doctor of laws. This is what his biographer says. Gaunt and haggard from long exposure to tropical sun, 
30 occasions he almost died from, from the, the, the steaming inland swamps. His left arm, crushed by a lion, a lion, hangs helplessly at his side to a hushed Butte Hall. This is what David Livingston says. But I return without misgiving and with great gladness. For would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among people whose language I couldn't understand and whose attitude towards me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this. Listen. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. David Livingston said, on those words I staked everything. And they never failed. That is precisely verse 8. That's why in looking at imperatives for the man of God, it is important that verse 7 is underlined and highlighted. Be confident that in obedience you will never be alone. I was encouraged by the pastor's address to the children and uh, these fascinating uh, pictures of four great Scottish sportsmen. And, uh, of course, the, uh, the fact that one of them was a team player. He plays for Manchester United, whatever that is, but he plays for them. But there's a song that arguably was written by one of the greatest lyricists of the 20th century, a man called Oscar Hammerstein. I hope it's all right that I, I won't sing it, but I, I hope it's all right to share this with you. When you walk through the storm, hold your head up high, and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of the lark. Walk on through the wind. Walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on. Walk on with hope in your heart. And you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. It was William Booth who said that we ought to take the songs of the day and Christianize them. I think that could easily be Christianized. You'll never walk alone when you walk in obedience to the clearly revealed will of the heart of God. And then we come to verse 9. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth. And he said to me, Now, I have put my words in your mouth. Let me read that again. Now I have put my words in your mouth. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Could be that the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, as he's still trying to protest, that maybe he's saying, shh, 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 shh. Maybe, I don't think so. I think what's happening in verse 9 is what happened here in this pulpit about 20-25 minutes ago. When Rodney and Jeanette Stout knelt here and three of us reached out our hands 
And we laid our hands in the name of Jesus, as if it were Jesus himself who was commissioning this man for this task to which God has called him. And the eighth imperative, brothers and sisters, would you notice it? Be assured that there is no substitute for the divine anointing. Something I believe passionately in my heart happened in this pulpit this morning to this man and this woman of God. This was no formality. Some kind of religious ritual that we took part in. I don't want anything to do with that. But I gladly was involved in this deeply significant part of this service when we reached out in Jesus' name and laid hands on this couple. As far as I can discover from the Bible, there are four occasions when hands are laid on people. Number one is for healing. Number two is for the anointing of the Spirit. Number three is for the releasing of spiritual gifts. And number four is for commissioning the servants of the living God. So something happened in this old building where God has continually met with men and women down through the years. I came across this that I thought you might like to hear. You probably heard it. 1946, Dr. Billy Graham heard Stephen Alford speak at Hildenborough Hall in England on the subject, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Dr. Graham said that he could sense that, here I'm quoting, Stephen, Stephen Alford, had something in his life that I wanted to capture. He had a dynamic, a thrill, an exhilaration about him. They arranged Billy Graham and Stephen Alford, they arranged to meet together for two days in a hotel in Pontypridd in Wales. Stephen Alford expounded, I'm quoting, the fullness of the Spirit in the life of the believer, recalling, I gave him, Billy Graham, my testimony of how God completely turned my life inside out. An experience of the Holy Spirit in his fullness and anointing as I talked says Stephen Alford. I can see him now, those marvelous eyes, glistening with tears. Billy Graham said, Stephen, I see it. That is what I want. That is what I need in my life. They knelt down and they prayed together. And finally, Billy Graham said, my heart is so flooded with the Holy Spirit. They went from praying to praising. We were laughing and praising God. Billy Graham walked back and forth across the room, crying out, I'm filled. This is the turning point in my life. This revolutionize my ministry. That evening Stephen Alford recalls as Billy rose to speak he was a man absolutely anointed. Hey, don't you want this stuff? The resources that God has made available to us. That what Jesus made possible on the cross the Holy Spirit wants to make actual in our lives. The Spirit has come to credit us with the risen life of the Lord Jesus. That's what's going on in verse 9. The Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, said to me, now I've put my words in your mouth. So be assured, Rodney Stout, man of God, woman of God, be assured 
that there is no substitute for the divine anointing. And into verse 10. See, says the Lord, today I appoint you. In his case over nations and kingdoms. Today I appoint you. I have no idea of the process by which you finally arrived at the conclusion that it was in the heart of God that Rodney Stout should be called to be an associate pastor working under the senior pastor's leadership with the team of staff with the other leadership in the congregation serving the Lord Jesus with all the passion of his heart I have no idea the process that you use. Because it seems to me that there are many processes that are used. The issue is not the process. The issue is the end result that we are totally, absolutely, comprehensively secure in the reality that God is in this. And that this is yet another new beginning for this part of the family of God, be humbled by the fact that it is God who appoints and not men. And then finally, look at what he's to do. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to do four negative things. To uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow. Wow. There's a calling. You see sometimes. Things need to be stopped. So that other things can be started. Sometimes. The good is the enemy of the best. Sometimes. We are so. Captured. By traditional ways that we can't move on into new ways. And it's much easier to begin things than to stop things. But it's part of leadership. Not to be critical, but to be perceptive. That while these things may well have served in a very fruitful and rewarding way in the past, they may not be the best ways today. So there's a negative in this calling. To uproot, tear down, and destroy, and overthrow. Hey, but there are two positive things. To build and to plant. And so the final imperative for the man of God, for the woman of God, is be courageous in fulfilling God's agenda. Brothers and sisters, where tradition is standing against truth, tradition has to yield. In order that the God whom we love and serve would be allowed 
to do what he wants rather than what we like. And so, Rodney, my friend and my brother, I give you these ten imperatives today, not because I shared them with you, but because I believe in my heart you'll need to return to these again and again and again. Put the sheet somewhere. This is the word of the living God. That you would revisit it. That the Spirit of God would take the word of God increasingly to make you into a man like the Son of God. It is for this purpose that you were called. And it is to this task and journey that you will now go. Can we just take a moment just to let the word of God settle in our hearts.